Welcome to the 10th episode of Earwig Serials. I'm your host, Tyler McNamara, and for the next 29 episodes of Season 1, I'll be reading from my book, The Mother of Darkspace. Chapter 9. Gaining Speed. Ray. Thursday morning, Ashley stepped from the elevator with a group of seven men of various heights, races, and ages close on his heels. They were smiling as if the laughter of a joke had just died down. Ashley met her eyes and must have determined her mood before she'd had a chance to realize she was nervous. Good morning, doctor, he said in a tone that was both professional and reassuring. Just imagine you're back in university, and this is one of the many group projects you'll have to carry. Ray steeled herself against all possibility of failure, cleared her throat, and said, Gentlemen, welcome to Lab 7. After she had given each of their hands a hearty shake, a semicircle formed naturally around her, and she said, I have handpicked each of you for your expertise, your creativity, and your willingness to take the risks required in making history. She led the group around the lab, teasing them with shiny new machines. I left the workstations basic, with the expectation that each of you would want to customize your own apps to your preferences and fields. If you feel you should need a particular piece of machinery, I want you to justify it in a formal proposal. Ray led the group to the conference table in the center of the room and gestured for them to sit. We'll all be working in this lab together, so I trust that we'll all adhere to a unified commitment to remain professional, to co-create diplomatic relationships, and to keep our work areas safe and clean. She said the word professional directly at Ashley, but his mind seemed elsewhere. Before I get too far into why we're here, let's go around and introduce ourselves. Her eyes fell to Dr. Ma'at on her left. As the introductions passed from doctor to doctor, counterclockwise around the table, each seemed more pompous than the next. Ray imagined them circling around each other like feral dogs, hackles raised and ears back. As she rolled her eyes, she noticed Ashley, who had been excluded from the table but was standing on call. Instead of looking like an outcast, he stood confidently in his own space. It was as if being excluded from the pissing contest had freed him from any need to compete. But then she realized that the look on his face was awe. He was basking in the light of their combined knowledge and experience. Watching this team work might be as close as he gets to working in the lab. She could see that he was hungry to learn from someone other than Evermore, and what he didn't realize was that these men weren't Dr. Evermore, and that in their world, Ashley was as important as a bug and as transparent as a ghost. She silently envied him as it approached her turn to introduce herself, which she reserved for last, mostly so she would have the last word. She didn't love her speech and ended up wishing she'd gone first so that they had time to forget it. After summarizing her educational background, recapitulating her spiel about where science and art meet, and sprinkling in bits from Evermore's talk about creative electricity, she said, And that brings us to the big reveal. What are we building? Evermore Industries has dedicated itself to the research and creation of a vessel capable of transgalactic travel at speeds faster than light. Ray had planned to pause for dramatic effect, but in her nervousness plowed right through it. As this has long been a thing of science fiction, your ability to invent fiction is just as important as your ability to create science. The first task which Dr. Evermore has assigned to Lab 7 is to observe and create a transbiological exchange of information beyond the electromagnetic spectrum, Ray finished. Reflecting back, she wished she had had the creativity to give a big, inspiring presentation like Evermore's, but she was exhausted from working at KNJ Labs until late in the night. Dr. Kander had wanted recompense for her breach of contract, so they had worked out a deal that didn't involve a commute to the South Pole. Does he mean for us to use Hawking radiation? 
The interruption had come from Dr. Benjamin Washington, the molecular physicist. I understand your line of reasoning, said Joseph Allen, with an air of annoyance. You're probably thinking that if it is able to escape a black hole, then it must be moving faster than light. Being the only astrophysicist here, please allow me to correct you. Hawking radiation is a form of thermal electromagnetic radiation emitted by all matter above zero Kelvin. It's produced not in the center of the hole, but at the event horizon. Ray cut in before the conversation could devolve. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, Dr. Ma'at, but I believe your theory of spiritual resonance is the most promising place to start. You have the next three hours to prepare a presentation of your research and analysis. I especially want to see the degree to which you have ruled out stimulus on the electromagnetic spectrum. The rest of you suspend your skepticism until Ma'at has made his case. I believe that if we can find out what's vibrating Dr. Ma'at's crystals, we'll be able to complete Evermore's assignment. In the same instant, Ma'at seemed both excited and overwhelmed. He nodded. Dr. Dahlia, I shall do my best. I expect genius. He looked into her eyes, searching for some hint of levity, but was struck by her cold seriousness. Yes, doctor, he said. Ray stood from the table, but stopped before walking away. I have a correction. I want the rest of you to spend these next three hours getting comfortable, situated, and reading Dr. Ma'at's paper. Ray returned to her own workstation, feeling the exhaustion taking its toll. Ray watched the seven as they wandered among the identical workstations. Some chose carefully, as with Dr. Raymond Hubert, the transitional metaphysicist, who looked as if he were divining the best one, while others plopped themselves down at the first station they reached. Andros Zephyr headed straight to the corner of the northwestern wall, the station farthest from Ray's desk. The first action each of them took was identical to hers. They placed their omni on the workstation. And like candles winking out, their eyes glazed over as they were pulled into cloud nine. Yet again, Andros Zephyr stood out. He was staring at his workstation, looking lost. Ashley, would you mind helping Mr. Zephyr sign in? Without waiting for a reply, she turned to her workstation. But a few moments later, she looked up and noticed Ashley was still at his desk, counting ceiling tiles. Ashley Ashley was lost in a maze of memories. He was thinking back to Evermore's poolside meeting and trying to see the faces of everyone who stepped from the elevator. He was certain each person was someone Evermore had worked with before. Ariel and Asbjorn Brevik were easily the most recognizable, but who was that guy who followed Ray from the elevator? Where had he seen him before? All he had was the hint of a memory of that man and Evermore shaking hands. Of course, Ashley thought. The answer is right in front of me. He awakened his workstation and started combing through the file system of the EI CloudNet, searching for a list of principal researchers. Within seconds, he found the name that jogged his memory. Hugo Voss. Voss was a parapsychologist who had won a grant from Evermore Biomedical Systems for half a million, sending both the board and the majority shareholders into a rage. The memory of Evermore shaking Voss's hand wasn't a memory of an event, but rather the memory of an image he'd seen on a news blog he liked to read in his teens. A thought was forming, waiting to emerge from the connections between Krellinger's Light, Lab 7's assignment, and Voss as the head of Lab 5. Why would Evermore hire a ghost hunter, he thought, feeling the solution calling to him like a plant reaching for the sun. Hello, Ashley. Yes, Dr. Dahlia? Would you mind helping Dr. Zephyr side into his workstation? She sounded annoyed. What's wrong with it, he asked, but as her eyebrows rose, he realized he was asking the wrong person. Ashley walked across the lab and looked over the doctor's shoulder at the workstation's login screen. All right, so your Omni should have asked you if you wanted to sync with a desk. Wait, where's your Omni? I didn't see anything like that. 
Zephyr's tone blamed Ashley for being incompetent. Keeping his voice low, Ashley said, Okay, well, can I take a look at your Omni to make sure it's connected to the cloud? Isn't that why you're over here? Zephyr said, turning around in his chair. The two stared at each other waiting, Zephyr for an explanation and Ashley for him to produce an Omni. Finally, Ashley said, Well, where is it? Suddenly, Zephyr seemed to realize that he was the source of the misunderstanding. Isn't this my Omni? he said, touching the desk. It took all of Ashley's will to remember his place, and to afford himself a moment to cool down. He went to his station and grabbed his Omni. He handed the e-plastic car to Dr. Zephyr, the so-called expert of reverse engineering alien technology. This is an Omni. See how it's telling me to put it on the workstation to allow it to sync? I see, he said. I thought Omni was short for Omnify, the company that manufactures these workstations. I don't have one of those. That's fine. It will work with your iCard or your Android HUD. Can I do it with my laptop? Zephyr said, and produced a computer that was at least 30 years old. Zephyr carefully unfolded the screen, and the ancient creature awakened with a whine of processor fans. Zephyr's desktop screen was filthy with shortcut icons, many of them labeled with strange characters. He expertly found his way to the network settings menu and said, This is what I get for trying to upgrade. Should I connect to the network named Evermore or Dahlia? Zephyr, it's time to stop carrying a processor and keyboard around and upgrade to an Omni. It's all you need to be able to access all the projects you work on from anywhere. That's the problem, Zephyr said, as if it were an explanation. With a laptop, the only place my secret information exists is here, not off in some holographic server farm. Which network do I connect to? But if you lose your information, never mind. There should only be one network option. Yet, looking over Zephyr's shoulder, he saw hundreds of them. What program are you using? Zephyr leaned closer to the screen. It says Network Con. I assume it means connections. Ashley noticed his own name among the list. Can I try something? He asked. Sure, Zephyr said, offering him the keyboard. Ashley connected to the referral network and found that he could access his entire Omni from this ancient computer and through his Omni he could access all of his private files in the cloud that should only be accessible through his Omni. It wasn't unheard of to access that information through another desk, but it required the Omni's encrypted registration number and Ashley's personal password. Sure, I can connect your workstation to your laptop, but it's going to take me a second. Do you mind if I take this to my station to work? In the meantime, just use your EIID badge to connect to the desk. I just saw you connect to your account. Can't you just sign into mine? Ashley broke eye contact and pretended to look stymied by Zephyr's screen. I did, but I have an Omni. It wasn't a lie, per se. Sure, Zephyr conceded. What do I do? Just swipe your ID badge over that symbol that tells the desk, there. Now sign in with the password you created at Human Resources. After he'd done that, Ashley said, good. Now open your email there, and there's Ma'at's paper that Dr. Dahlia sent to you. Good. Happy reading. I'll be right back with this. Ashley set the laptop on his desk, went back to the network con program, and selected about. A window popped up with the version number, the year it was released, two years prior, and the designer. In angle brackets, Euclid. Also in angle brackets, forward slash Euclid. What the hell? How did this guy get his hands on a darknet program? Zephyr had been correct. Connecting his laptop to his workstation would just be a matter of selecting the right network. But Ashley had seen an opportunity. On Zephyr's laptop, Ashley selected Evermore's network and found that he had access to all of Evermore's files in Cloud9. Ashley pulled up a search program, and with his heart racing, he typed Samuel Resnick and hit enter. 
The laptop was slow. Three seconds elapsed, and Ashley assumed it had frozen. But a moment later, two files were revealed. The first was a PDF of Samuel Resnick's birth certificate, and the second was an MP3, an audio file. Ashley stared at the files for a full minute before selecting them. Before doing anything with them, he changed his mind and closed the window. He was about to return the laptop to Zephyr when he changed his mind again. Reopening the search window, he found the files and selected them. But before he could hit copy, he stopped. This is suspiciously easy. This was the perfect opportunity, and any trace of the theft would lead back to Zephyr. Ashley tried to tap into his anger to fuel the resolution to take something precious from Evermore, but thinking and doing were two separate things. If this were one of Evermore's tests, he'd have to get Zephyr in on it, find and install a darknet program, and all of those things were out of Evermore's wheelhouse. The only reason I can think of not to take it is that it's too easy. He set Zephyr's network connection so it would connect with his workstation and return the laptop. Ray. For the next three hours, Lab 7 was almost silent as her team read Dr. Maat's paper, and she counted the minutes before noon. Ashley was the first to blink his screen-weary eyes, stretch, and ask, Is anyone else ready for lunch? I could continue our tour of the Evermore Industries building. Ray wanted to jump up and ride the elevator down with them, but patiently waited for them all to leave. As the elevator doors closed, she allowed herself to rise. She took her Omni, but left her lab coat. She called the elevator, but as she waited, she realized she wasn't alone. Cyrus Ma'at was still at his desk, typing hurriedly and looking concerned. That was the passion she was hungry for. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider following me on Twitter at Tyler R. McNamara, M-C-N-A-M-A-R-A, and using the hashtag M-O-D-S-Book. You can learn more about the book project at earweekpublishing.com or on Facebook at earweekpublishing. Earweek Serials is supported by you listeners. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider becoming a monthly supporter and gain access to bonus content at patreon.com slash motherofdarkspace. Or, if you'd like to make a single offering, visit paypal.me slash earweekpublishing. Finally, I'd like to thank the artist's silent partner for the use of their song, Frequency. Now, the second half of episode 10. Although she was waiting in a corner diner, menu in hand, Ray wasn't hungry in the traditional sense. She had spent three and a half days working at Evermore Industries and half her nights at Kander and Jensen. She had a craving for sleep. But more than that, the hollow had opened back up, and she could feel it slowly devouring her like a hungry cancer. One does not fight with improper weapons, and she wanted this thing dead. It hadn't been this bad since the months she waited for Umars to accept her. In the darkness, the unknown created an amalgam of the worst horrors she could imagine. Then and now she experienced the hollow as a dull sensation which consumed pieces of her. It grew over hours and days, threatening to consume her entirely. She felt that if it ever reached her head, she might jump off something very high and try to land on it. She had tried throwing food and alcohol into it. Food only made her feel worse about herself. And alcohol acted like the Higgs mechanism, imparting mass on the hollow, which in turn gave it gravity. Before coming to Mars, she had tried feeding it mushrooms, once, never again. It had given the whole a voice, and without warning she had two mothers telling her how meaningless her life was. Having trouble navigating the menu? asked the fry cook slash waiter slash owner. She looked up from the e-paper menu expecting sarcasm, but met kind eyes under thick, dark eyebrows. No, I'm just waiting for somebody. Your boyfriend? he asked, moving along the bar, clearing plates and silverware as he went. No, he decided before she could answer. You're too pretty to be kept waiting this long. Before he could guess any more, another customer walked through the open door. 
He was lanky, but not much taller than she, pale, with a round face on the end of a long neck. Resting on ears big enough to flap in the wind, if there had been any beneath the dome, sat a pair of omni-view glasses. The chemist had that glazed, internal look that let people around him know that they were merely obstacles to be avoided while the rest of his attention was in cloud nine. Without making eye contact, he took a seat at the bar beside her and said, Coffee, two eggs, wheat toast, butter, toast and coffee both black. The cook said, You got it, buddy. How would you like your eggs? The chemist looked up with dark hazel eyes that were wet and pink from overuse. Over hard, he said. You want jelly on your toast? Do you have pluot jam? The cook chuckled. Take off your glasses and take a look at this place. You've got two choices. Without touching his glasses, the chemist said, Silverberry and grape. Though we both know that the main ingredient is apple. It wasn't a hard guess. The list of fruit available on Mars could be counted on one's fingers. Forcing a smile, the cook nodded. So which will it be? The chemist tapped his fingers on the diner counter like a keyboard, as indeed in his augmented world it was. The flickering light of the omni-view in front of his eyes winked off. There. My glasses are off. You know what I see? He didn't wait for an answer. I see a greasy spoon on the same street as four others, all with the exact same menu. Ray's omni buzzed with a text. She dropped out of the conversation to read it. Tea chemist. I couldn't produce enough for a week. I'll charge you for five, and you'll get two free the next time you're hungry. R. Dahlia. And what if I don't get hungry again? Per pound, the cook said, disbelieving. That'll cook down to little more than a cup of jam. The chemist raised his eyebrow. Let's do the math. There's 48 teaspoons in a cup. If you charge the same amount for a serving of raspberry jewel pluot jam as you do for cream cheese, that's 180% profit margin. And you begin to distinguish yourself from the rest of the mediocrity on this street. Until you go to them with the same deal. The chemist shook his head. This is private stock. I only get one pound a month, but if you buy that pound, then I don't have anything to sell. The cook seemed excited at the prospect, but turned to Ray. You sure I can't get you anything, hun? She shook her head. The chemist tapped on the counter again and her omni buzzed. T chemist. Then you only get charged for five. BTW, I hear you got a job at EI. The price just went up by 10%. R. Dahlia. What? Why? Because you think I'm making more money? T chemist. No, because you're a turncoat. It felt ridiculous messaging with the person sitting next to her, but this was a game, and games have rules. 1. Never at K&J. 2. Never where there are cameras. 3. Never speak. Text. 4. Never look at me. Text. 5. Never tell anyone about me. Tell me about them. 6. Once we establish the ingredients you want, only refer to them as your order. 7. Never names. No slang. And if you forget, you'll never hear from me again. Ardalia. Whatever. Fine. The cook turned his back to them, opened a refrigerator drawer beneath the grill, took out two eggs and cracked them into a sizzling puddle of butter. Having both created and waited for this opportunity, the chemist, without looking up, reached into his pocket and slipped an envelope of aluminum foil under her napkin. He then placed his omni on the counter right at the invisible border between the countries of their personal space. The cook took a pinkish mug the color of Martian ceramics from beneath the counter, filled it with thick, dark coffee, and set it in front of the chemist. You got a deal. I'll take the pound, and if I can move it in a month, I'll take another, he said, and turned back to the griddle. Ray opened her wallet app, typed in the number, and gently tapped her omni into the chemist's, transferring the money. I don't think my friend's going to show, she said, using the wallet app again, this time to leave him a small tip. Sorry for just sitting here. 
Here's a few bucks for the seat. You sure I can't get you anything? How about a Reuben? I got fresh crowd in this morning. Got a crunch like you wouldn't believe. No, thank you, she said, standing and stuffing the napkin, foil and all, into her pocket. See you around. The chemist looked up as if he'd just become aware that someone else was there, took a sip of his coffee, decided not to participate in the world outside his omniview, and his eyes glazed over. T. Chemist. Pleasure as always. I'll be in touch. A few blocks down, Ray ducked into a blind alley and unwrapped the foil. Five pills. Stimulants. Stims. Chalk if you were in high school. Greenies in sports. And speed by an older generation that still remembered the amphetamine uppers of yesteryear. This product, which the chemist told her to order as Queen Anne's Lace, was not a big batch product. In the Terradome, at least, rules were too strict and freedoms too scarce to supply a customer base of addicts, and Queen Anne's Lace was not a slang term for stims. It was Ray's stim built from her hacked medical files and biosamples taken directly by the chemist. It was a near-perfect key to the lock of her neurotransmitter receptors. As the pill scraped its way down her throat without water, she could feel everything change. While the shoots she had taken at Chasma Australia brightened her perception of reality, Queen Anne's Lace took the turbulent, chaotic world and nailed it down in a logical matrix. The steps required to reach the rickshaw docking station were of even number, and there was no need for a half-step. Even the whine of the electric engine started low and climbed a musical scale in an even, orderly way as she accelerated to top speed. The glass doors of the EI building slid open for her seamlessly, and the elevator was held by a balding doctor traveling to the ninth floor. From the moment the rickshaw docked until she stepped into the elevator, her stride remained unbroken. For a moment, she found herself on the edge of tears, overwhelmed with relief that everything was finally sliding into place. This has been Chapter 9 of The Mother of Dark Space by Tyler McNamara. Episode 10 of Earwig Serials was brought to you by Joe's Cafe. Hey there, what are you hungry for? Golden brown pancakes with fresh pluot jam? Eggs? Cooked just the way you like them? Or maybe just a hot cup of coffee to go? The media people tell me we can't be the place where everyone knows your name. But I will remember your name. I know all my regulars. Except for the guy with the glasses. I don't think I've ever heard his name. Anyway, if you want a place to eat in downtown Niley Terradome with great breakfast and great coffee, come to Joe's Cafe. Though I should also mention we don't have outdoor seating, which is kind of what makes a cafe a cafe. Anyway, you come hungry, and I promise you'll leave happy.